here at church at Sunny Hill this Sunday evening, and for those of you uh, joining online as well, we're really glad that you can sink in uh, with us. We do hope we'll be able to get back uh, in person soon, um, and uh, please do later on connect with us by connecting with us if there's anything we can be praying for you or to help you um, to be able to do this in person. Um, friends, we pray if you have your Bibles open at chapter 32 uh, in Genesis, it'll be a big help. Uh, for me and for you, if we've all got that open uh, to follow through as we uh, are drawing to a close uh, in our time of walking through um, Jacob's uh, experience and narrative about Jacob from the book of Genesis. Uh, 230 years ago, uh, the Austrian army, led by the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II, found itself encamped in Romania and unexpectedly under the cover of night, ambushed, uh, sparking a bloody skirmish that would continue throughout the night until daybreak. Uh, it was assumed that the Turkish army, who they were fighting at the time, had discovered their position and had decided to surprise them under the cover of darkness. And yet, as the sun rose over the turmoil of the Austrian camp, daylight revealed that there actually been no enemy at all within miles this encampment. They had in fact been fighting only themselves. Apparently the entire battle had been sparked by a drunken officer who discharged his weapon during the evening, during the night, provoking all the on-edge soldiers to mistakenly take up arms against each other to do battle with those who were actually their allies. Some reports, probably a little bit inflated, suggested even 10,000 or so people died in the midst of this conflict. I think it's probably inflated, but it doesn't sound like it ended well for anyone. Uh, the bewildering and mysterious events that are described in the passage we're looking at together from Genesis this evening have kind of got a similar feel about them. A seemingly pointless nighttime struggle it doesn't really seem to have enemies or foes struggling with each other at all. Uh, having just evaded the immortal threats of his uncle Laban, and in anticipation of confrontation with his murderous brother Esau the following day, we find Jacob here in this passage alone, by himself, in a deserted camp after dark, in a state of heightened anxiety. Uh, let's pick it up. Let's chart out the start of a passage, which was chapter 32, uh, verse 22 as well. Verse 22. We read, That night Jacob got up, and took his, the two, his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the floor to Galilee. After he had sent them across the street, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. It's not immediately clear where on earth this man has materialized from, or even who he is. Or even why on earth he has any cause to be wrestling with and grappling with Jacob on this side of the Jabbok by himself? Does Jacob assume maybe that Laban has circled back deceitfully under the cover of night to attack him, even despite having had that peace agreement that they signed last week? Does Jacob maybe imagine that Esau, expert hunter as we know he is, has somehow tracked him through the night and caught him unawares? There's a deliberate ambiguity, I think, about who on earth this man actually is. 
as this event, the event of this passage, would be unfolded. Uh, the prophet Hosea, though, uh, in chapter 12, I've got the reference on the sheets, so but I'll put it up later. The prophet Hosea would later say and describe that Jacob's struggle with this passage as being with both an angel and with God himself. Perhaps he went to assume that this skirmish was with the Lord's angel, the one, the angel who represents God's very presence to Jacob. And given that the encampment of angels that Jacob had stumbled across in the passage we looked at last week, I think that probably seems most likely. Here, Jacob is wrestling with the angel, the angel of the Lord, who is the representation of God's presence to Jacob. It's clear that whoever this figure is, he is to some degree toying with Jacob in this struggle. This figure clearly has the power to do harm to Jacob if he so wishes. The power to dislocate or to wrench apart the tendons of Jacob's hip and his groin just a touch. But it's also clear that this mysterious figure just can't convince Jacob to abandon this pointless nocturnal wrestling match. Uh, pick it up with me from verse 25. Verse 25, Jacob wrestling with this man, and we read in verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it today, right? But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, said, said Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Canaan, saying, It is because I saw God face to and yet my life was spared. Whoever Jacob imagines this mysterious combatant is, he certainly recognises that this mysterious figure is greater than himself. For it's only ever the greater who blesses the lesser. And at this point, Jacob's crippled hip leaves him powerless to actually defeat the mysterious man, to conquer him. Jacob can do nothing but cling on desperately and stubbornly plead for a blessing. And perhaps surprisingly, the mysterious figure appears perfectly willing to oblige. What is your name? The mysterious figure asks Jacob. Now, the last time that Jacob had tried to secure a blessing for himself, he had been asked the same kind of question you might remember by his blind father. Isaac. Do you remember that? Suspecting that some kind of deception was afoot, Isaac had asked, Who is it that I'm blessing? And having an advantage over his poor blind father, Jacob had lied in order to secure the blessing by deception. But here, a humble and crippled Jacob confesses his name truthfully. Notice as well that Jacob doesn't wrestle or deceive a blessing out of the figure, uh, as if he somehow conquered the one who was wrestling with. Jacob simply holds on to him stubbornly, even if helplessly, crippled at the hip, and receives a blessing in response to his request. 
meaning wrestles with God, to supplement his existing name, Jacob, which means wrestling the heel. These names, actually, uh, the name Israel doesn't replace Jacob in the story that follows. In fact, in most of the rest of Genesis, Jacob continues to be named Jacob. It's a little bit confusing. When Abraham received a new name, his name went from Abraham to Abraham, and it stuck for the remainder of the story. For the remainder of Jacob's life, things go backwards and forwards between the two names. Grasps, or wrestles with God, sorry, and grasps the heel. Jacob is one who has tried to grasp the blessing, whether that means grasping after other humans or grasping after God himself. And neither name really is very complimentary. A 97-year-old here, Jacob, has lived his entire life imagining that blessing is something he needs to wrestle from the clutches, either of other people or God himself. But as the sun begins to rise over Jacob, Finally dawns on him that God has delivered on the very promise that he made 20 years earlier. Uh, in this story, we've got the sun uh, beginning to rise as Jacob returns home after 20 years away, and God has faithfully delivered on his promises. But 20 years earlier, you might remember that as Jacob left his homeland, the sun was setting. And at that point, God had given him these promises. As the sun set and Jacob left home, God promised he would be with him and bless him. As Jacob returns home 20 years later, the sun rises. It turns out God has delivered on all that he promised to do for this man, Jacob. And it's only at this point that it all clicks for Jacob. This one that he's been needlessly wrestling with face to face is the same God who 20 years earlier had already promised to bring him back to this land blessed. Jacob never did need to wrestle with anyone, not God, not other humans, in order to secure the blessing. To overcome or to prevail, he simply had to cling onto and wait for God to deliver his promise. In fact, when we get to the book of Revelation, it speaks in a very similar way about God's own people. It speaks about those who overcome those who are victorious are those who hold on to the end and faithfully wait for God to deliver finally on his promises. We see that at the end of Revelation chapter 3. Now, what follows, I think, is perhaps one of the most tender and moving moments in the whole Jacob narrative, the whole Jacob story. I have a look there with you at verse 31. Uh, it's a short verse, but a moving one. We read the sun rose above him as he passed Penan, and he was limping because of his hip. The rising sun, a symbol of God's faithful kindness, casting its warm glow over Jacob. And in fact, as Jacob's descendants, the twelve tribes that come from Jacob, are returning home after slavery in Egypt, this exact same imagery is used as God rises like the sun over Jacob's descendants, blessing them as they prepare to enter back into the promised land that God has given to them in this passage. The rising sun, a symbol of God's faithful kindness rising over Jacob, and the limb, the limb signifying a humbled and chastened Jacob. 
but also a Jacob more at peace than he has ever been before at any point so far in the narrative that Genesis has described his life for us. The glorious splendor of God's undeserved grace shines down on the limping frailty of a formerly self-reliant Jacob. And it actually brings to mind the fact God's similar work through the Apostle Paul. Confronted by his own frailty, signified by Paul not by a limb, but by a thorn in the flesh, you might remember this passage. Paul had pleaded with God that he might remove this weakness from him, this thorn in the flesh. But God declines to do so. Instead, declaring to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's the exact same principle that's at work here, as God's grace shines on Jacob, even in the midst of his own weakness being manifestly displayed. And in response to these words from God, the Apostle Paul resolves to actually boast in his weakness, so that the light of Christ's power might rest on him more clearly. But Jacob's newly discovered peace of mind, Jacob's capacity to rest in God, is quickly put to the test as he sees Esau approaching with 400 armed men. Uh, let's have a look at how this play that plays out. Uh, chapter 33, we'll read from verse 1. Chapter 33. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Now before we imagine that this meeting represents an unqualified, happy family reunion, we might want to recall who last greeted Jacob in exactly this same kind of way, by running to him, by embracing him, by kissing him, even a few tears wept. It was Laban, wasn't it? His uncle Laban, remember that? Laban, the one who sought to absorb Jacob into his own family for his own financial benefit, the one who would seek to control and manipulate Jacob with wages, rather than allowing Jacob to pursue God's promised blessing. And the slightly standoffish vibe that we'll soon see between Jacob and Esau, I think is actually a wise recognition by Jacob that his and Esau's destinies don't ultimately lie entwined together. Let's have a look at just one aspect of how Jacob and Esau actually got to relate in this reunion. Uh, have a look with me at verse 8. Chapter 33, verse 8. Uh, referring to all the gifts that Jacob had sent ahead uh, to Esau, uh, Esau asks, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds that I need to find favour in your eyes, my Lord? Jacob said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Uh, in response to Jacob's gifts, Esau insists, No, no, brother, I have Plenty. Uh, plenty is actually a little bit of an understatement because Esau actually.
actually possesses everything that Isaac had previously blessed Jacob with. The blessing and inheritance that Isaac had pronounced would go to Jacob had actually all ended up in Esau's hands anyway, while Jacob had been away with Laban those 20 years. The thing is, Jacob's response is to insist to give Esau even more. Uh, have a look at me at uh, the verses that follow. I'll read from uh, verse 10. Verse 10 yeah. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favour in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received your favour. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. I have all I need. Jacob says. Literally, Jacob is saying here, I have everything. Full stop. Jacob is not just merely contented with his lot. It's, it's not just that Jacob's returning home with all that he needs. Actually, he's returning home, it says, with everything. With everything that God had ever promised to deliver to him. Indeed, Jacob has enough to bless Laban. Jacob has enough to bless Esau with out of all that God has given to him. While Esau himself owns nothing that is worth offering to Jacob. Jacob truly has returned home, blessed by God. And I think this explains why Jacob takes leave of Esau rather than returning with him to set up community or home with him once again. Uh, have a look with me in just a couple of verses. Uh, chapter 33, verse 12. First of all, we see Esau says, Let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. And Jacob says, No, no, no. Uh, um, we're going to be moving too slowly. And then down in verse 15, Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favour in the eyes of my Lord. And so Esau returns home to Seir, and Jacob turns in the opposite direction towards Shechem in Canaan, toward the land that God had promised to give him. So Jacob's decision to part company with Esau at this point is no act of deceit or defensiveness, nor was it a pathological tendency towards conflict avoidance or something like that, that Jacob just thought he'd go his own way. Jacob is choosing to entrust himself to God's promises to deliver the land of Canaan to him, rather than to trust whatever security those like Esau might have to offer him. And it's a thing that actually resurfaces throughout the but while Jacob seeks, genuinely seeks peace with Esau, he also knows that God has called him to pursue a very different destiny from Esau. is to seek peace with him, but to live a life distinct and separate to him. We find the same thing, uh, actually, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's going to pop up there on the screen. I'll read a couple of verses to you from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, where the believers are urged, are exhorted there, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. See to it that no one is godless like Esau. See, like Jacob with Esau, God's people are to be genuinely and generously living at peace with those who are around about them. And yet, they are also to be holy, to be distinct, to be set apart from those that they live. 
They are to be distinct and pursuing of a life that is set apart from the way in which those around about them live. And Jacob is the perfect embodiment of this general attitude. He pursues peace with Esau, yet while recognizing that God is calling him to live in a distinct and different way. He has a different destiny as the one that God has chosen. But Jacob never did need to wrestle or struggle with anyone in order to secure or to take hold of God. Jacob only needed to keep holding on to the God who had first reached out to take hold of and bless him. And it's the very same sentiment that the Apostle Paul expresses in his letter to the Philippian church, we read out a bit earlier, where he writes this I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. See, the Christian life is not one in which we need to ever grasp after or wrestle good things from the hand of God by our own strength. The Lord Jesus himself has already reached out and taken hold of us first so that we might share in every heavenly blessing that comes to us through To be sure, the Christian life will likely involve all kinds of struggles. We may wrestle with a lack of confidence in the goodness of what God promises. We might wrestle with the goodness of God's will or the mystery of God's time in what he does and how he does it. We might wrestle with doubts over God's capacity to keep his promises, with our own worthiness to receive those things that God promises. We might wrestle with fears and frailty of our own mortal human flesh. We may wrestle with the desires of our own hearts. We may wrestle with whether holding on to God is really worth the cost of what trusting Him might require us to let go of. But we don't need to wrestle any good thing from God's hands. Jacob himself wrestled greatly and consistently with all those sins that I've just listed. But as with Jacob, so also with us, the life of faith is not one in which we need to grasp after or wrestle good things from the hand of or our own initiative. Rather, God has first reached out and taken hold of us that he might bless us in and through his own beloved son for all things. Rather than ourselves grasping, we must learn to rest here in God's hold of us. And in so doing, we will experience a peace even greater than that which Jacob himself experiences as he walks into the promised land that God had declared he would bring to him. God has first reached out and grasped us. We don't need to anxiously grasp after anything that was promised to us. We need to stubbornly hold on to him and wait for him to deliver his good time. And as the sun rose on Jacob, so the scriptures promise there will come a day when there will be no more night. The book of Revelation describes how it will always be sun. The sun will always be up. It will always be daylight. And we'll never need to fear about that. Any blessing of God's ever stepping to our Let's pray. Dearest Father, there is much that we wrestle with. We wrestle against our own hearts, and our minds, our own desires, 
We wrestle with others, we wrestle with our doubts. And yet, Father, we thank you that we don't need to wrestle anything out of your hands. For what you have promised us in your faith and Son, the Lord Jesus, you will not fail to deliver. Father, even in our weaknesses, especially in our frailties and our weaknesses, we ask that you might teach us, as you taught Jacob, to rest in your promises and your capacity to Father, as we rest in the Lord Jesus, we pray that we might experience a peace even greater than that which Jacob experienced. And that you might enable us to endure and persevere until that day in which the sun rises in new creation uh, and no blessing will ever vanish from before our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, friends, if there are any questions about the passage itself that we've been looking at, uh, or any of the things that I've reflected on over the course of the evening, uh, please feel free to scan that QR code down the bottom of the sheet uh, and send them in. And if there are any questions, we'll have a crack at answering those a little bit later uh, as Lauren brings us uh, a further reflection.